Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, we're recording uh, a little earlier this week for scheduling reasons. So if news happens on Tuesday and we don't cover it, I hereby absolve us of any responsibility. And I'm doing like the Catholic thing. I don't even yeah, know if I'm doing the right direction. That's quite ritualistic of you. Uh, Thank you so much. We'll, we'll see what we can do. Uh, and we won't lead with any sports news, even though I've watched 100 hours of World Cup and the Mets are making uh, big signings left and right. But we won't even talk about that. We're definitely not talking about it right now. No, we're not talking about the Mets upgrading Justin Verlander. A uh, huge win for the New York Mets franchise. Um, a little better off than the U.S. men's team, but uh, proud of those guys. Yeah, proud of those guys. Uh, but it would be absurd to leave the sports because it's a foreign policy show. And today... We are going to cover the latest news on the protests in China and Iran, the war in Ukraine, TikTok and U.S. politics. Very interesting story in Forbes about that. Our friend Elon Musk apparently still owns Twitter. He loves me. We interacted over the weekend. Uh, And then the royal family did Boston and man, it delivered for all of us. And then Ben, tomorrow you are talking with, I think, one of our favorite Pod of the World guests of all time on the show, Maria Ressa from Rappler News. What are you guys going to talk about? I don't even done it yet, but what do, what do you think you're going to focus on? Well, this is Nobel Peace Prize winning uh, journalist and you know, really- Certified badass. A, yeah, certified badass and someone who's as smart as anybody on the planet about social media and what it's done to democracy. And she has a new book out, How to Stand Up to a Dictator, which is, I have to admit, a great title. Great um, title. Which we'll talk about and which I, I think we can all get behind. It's kind of what we want to learn from one another on this podcast. She's awesome and inspiring. And one of the just, yeah, just a, a, she was on Colbert recently. It was really great. I saw that. that out. Yeah, good clip. Yeah. Good. Everyone, great clip. Everyone should buy the book. Uh, also, speaking of reading, Ben, I read your Bourdain piece over the weekend and it made me so sad. You really, you, 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 you I, I missed him. You put me to a little bit of a funk at the end. I want him back. I, I, you know, I have to tell you, I've written a bunch of stuff the last few years. I, I've never gotten as much feedback on anything I've written than, than uh, Andy Bourdain. Clearly, there are other people out there that feel both uh, this sense of loss with what he brought us and also this sense of mystery about how such a big life could end in such a sad way. Uh, and uh, also a sign that maybe talking about things other than just politics and international relations is, can, can reach people closer to where they are. So uh, I appreciate yeah. all the all the feedback I've gotten. I have to say, Tommy, I'm just going to say something else here. I've been traveling a lot. I, like worldos are coming out of the woodwork. I, I've met word, you know, worldos everywhere from like the, the yeasty boys bagel truck on Abbot Kinney to the, <laughs> the bookstore in New York city that I went by. So, uh, thanks everybody for, for saying hi. And, uh, it's good to know you're out there. Yeasty boys is an all time great food truck name. Uh, all time great. All-time and great. like, there's some good ones out there. I was actually walking my dog yesterday and a guy, a very nice younger guy uh, rode by me and was like, dude, I was just listening to episode seven of World Corrupt, the World Cup uh, pod I've been doing. 
And I feel the same way. I love doing this show with you. I love talking politics on Pod Save America. But sometimes just like letting your brain go deep on something new, like for me, soccer is such a nice relief. I don't know. You just sort of like new synapses start firing, new pathways develop. You just like get to a different place and it's incredibly rewarding. Yeah, well, with Bourdain, what was interesting is that it's different context, obviously, because writing about like a personality and a life and, and television show. But it's the same stuff, right? In the same way that World Corrupt interacts with the same issues we talk about, um, Bourdain's life interacted with, you know, everything because he traveled everywhere. So, uh, yeah, it's a good way of, of stretching uh, stretching yourself beyond the boundaries of the the usual topic list that we have here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so let's let's go to... China, because that was the the big story we did last week. And I think there's been some really interesting developments. So last week, we talked about the protests against China's zero COVID policy, which is where they were just doing these draconian lockdowns of citizens, tens of millions, about hundreds of millions of citizens across China were getting locked in their homes, sometimes locked in physically or like welded shut uh, in cities across the country. So there, there were these protests, they popped up everywhere. And I've seen a lot of reports since about protesters getting rounded up threatened, arrested, but it also appears like some of their demands are starting to be met. Because in the last few days, a number of cities have relaxed some of the COVID restrictions and the official in charge of pandemic response efforts, I think like the vice premier, seemed to soften the government's stance in a recent speech. So Ben, I mean, obviously Xi Jinping could walk these changes back and it could all end in disaster, any sort of loosening since China faces real challenges in dealing with COVID because their vaccines suck and the country has not done enough to ensure that the hospital system has enough beds to deal with a major outbreak. But what did you make of Xi Jinping, like Chinese dictator for life, actually bending to popular will here? I think it, it it's really important because it demonstrates that even a totalitarian government um, has to respond to public will to some extent, right? I mean, and mm-hmm. let's be clear, he's not going as far as I think what a lot of Chinese would like and opening things up and accepting more, uh, well, at least vaccines from abroad. Uh, but he did feel like he needed to be somewhat responsive and try to thread some needle here with the public discontent. Um, and so, again, it's a reminder that public opinion matters even in places where it seems like it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it also speaks to the fact that this wasn't just a political issue. Look, let's say, I don't know, there was some political scandal and then there were some protests. Well, those you could just, you know, crack down as hard as possible, round people up, throw them in jail and right. think you solve the problem. But here, because it's this kind of social, economic and political issue, he, he actually can't do that. Right. Because this isn't like some yeah. protest movement with a few leaders or a few student leaders. Uh, and so it shows that there's going to be this kind of probably tug of war for some time now because this is not going to go away. Um, a new part of life in China is there's an understanding that there's widespread discontent with the government and the government is going to have to try to thread some needle between cracking down and being responsive to it. And, you know, that shows that we're in kind of a new new territory here with respect to the Chinese Communist Party. So that's the big question, right, which is whether a broad swath of Chinese citizens will understand that there were protests and they led to these changes or whether the censorship authorities can just like sufficiently wipe it all off the internet. I I have some, it does seem like Chinese censorship, while incredibly effective, the most effective censorship regime in the history of the world, uh, there was, it showed its limits here. Like, I think, you know, I heard some really interesting reporting about how 
the censors have a harder time dealing with videos and like videos of protests because ultimately like you need a human being to watch some of them to see if something really is an edge case. And like people are getting savvier. I heard someone say that um, sometimes protesters are embedding protest videos within other clips. So it'll be like a SpongeBob clip, but SpongeBob is watching <laughs> uh, a protest on TV. Uh, I heard this on the the Hard Fork podcast, a great tech podcast uh, on the New York Times. So I don't know. That's, uh, that to me is the question, whether people will like, you know, tie these two things together. Well, and think about it this way too. Like if there's, let's say there's a political event that sparked the protest, like I was just saying. So let's, you know, a hypothetical, right? Like some person is killed by security forces and people see that video and they get motivated and go out and protest. Right. You can crack on down on that. You can make sure yeah. that nobody sees that video. Right. But everybody in China has been through this maddening <laughs> fucking experience of being locked up. So you can't like make people not be pissed about what they've lived through. And if they hear any ounce of information about this protest about this, well, they, they probably immediately sympathize with it. So you, you can't wipe away, you know, they can control so much, they can control so much information flow and they can create so much voluminous propaganda, but they can't change how much it sucks that the government has messed this up so bad, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. and that's, that's to me, and, and never mind the economic imperative of opening things up because like you can't just continue to be this outlier in a global economy where, where you're shut down like this. So they're going to lose some face. Like, as we said last week, they're getting cut down a notch here and, uh, and they're not out of the woods by any stretch because it, yeah. this problem is going to be around for them. I saw uh, Chinese president Xi Jinping is going to Saudi Arabia to meet with Mohammed bin Salman. So, you know, I'm sure that'll be a blast. So related story, Ben, <laughs> uh, protests in Iran, which started back in September, because of an incident like the one you just described where a young Iranian woman named Masa Amini was murdered by Iran's morality police, the thugs who run around, harass Iranian citizens over how they're dressed, basically, especially women. Uh, but over the weekend, there's reports that Iran has abolished the morality police. Apparently, the attorney general of Iran said as much on Saturday. This was reported on Iranian state media. Uh, if it was inaccurate, it hasn't been corrected as of Sunday. So I did see a lot of Iran experts kind of questioning this news, wondering whether it was misreported, wondering if it was just kind of, you know, a lie to begin with. But there's also the question of whether this is just too little too late either way, since the protesters demands have grown to include many other things, including regime change in a lot of instances, and people have been radicalized by the government crackdown in response. But what did you make of this news about the morality police? Like, first of all, do you buy it? And what do you think it would mean if it were true? Well, first of all, it was interesting how it came out, because this yeah. was not exactly a full throated announcement by the government, right? So, you know, this was not a fatwa from the Supreme Leader, or like a coordinated statement across the government. What that kind of tells you is, you know, they're fissures in even a regime like Iran's. In fact, Iran's right. got this kind of strange system, right, that we dealt with where there's the supreme leader and kind of clerical establishment, the Ayatollahs. Then there's like the, you know, quote unquote, elected government, right, uh, and people who run the kind of the ministries. And then there are all these kind of quasi power centers, the, the Revolutionary Guard. Point being that there are probably differences of opinion in that government about what to do. And there are probably some people who are like, we should just abolish the morality police. There are probably other people who don't want to do that. And so they made this kind of half-assed announcement. That speaks to me that the regime doesn't really know what it's doing. And they have divisions inside of that regime about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And it may be that like somebody could be the fall guy when this doesn't work or somebody wants to distance themselves from this and not own it. And I saw even in the statement saying that they were abolishing the morality police, they said that there would still be like social laws that were enforced, right? And so- 
that gets to your other question. Obviously, this is too little too late. <laughs> like if they had done this at the very beginning, maybe it would have mollified some of the people, not all the people protesting. But clearly, these protests have, have grown like a like a snowball going down a mountain. And the grievances are now not just a morality police, it's the entire nature of the Islamic Republic and the, the regime there. So a theme of this week, I guess, is like with China, like half measures, you know, might might make things a little easier. Well, actually, in this case, I actually don't even think it will, to tell you yeah. the truth. Um, in China, it might make things a little easier for some people. But um, here, I, I just think this is too little too late. And, and I think the way they did it, you know, spoke to some weakness and some lack of cohesion on how they're responding to it. Yeah, you can't kill like hundreds of people and be like, all right, we'll give this much. Yeah, uh, yeah. The other like follow-up uh, item we wanted to talk about was a few months back, we talked about this Iranian professional rock climber uh, named Elnaz Rikabi. She was competing in October in a climbing competition in South Korea, and she did it without her headscarf on, which was broadly viewed as this deliberate act to show solidarity with the protesters. Now, after she got back to Iran, Rikabi said, no, this was an accident, right? But it's probably, that comment was probably made under duress, or it's, I think it's fair to think it could have been. Now, a over the weekend, a news outlet called Ronwire uh, is reporting that her family's home was demolished. So it's not totally clear who did this and why. I have some guesses, but it also comes not long after we learned that the families of Iran's World Cup soccer team, uh, the players' families were threatened because they didn't sing the national anthem in protest and solidarity for the protesters. So, you know, look, just a reminder of what these athletes uh, and these protesters are, are risking, even the incredibly famous one. I mean, not only is she a famous professional rock climber, her brother is as well, and they just demolished the house, gold medals, trophies and all. Yeah, I mean, first of all, this kind of makes the morality police announcement ring just that much more hollow. Totally. Right? I mean, you can make announcements like that, but the thing is a lot of these morality police were kind of plainclothes goons, right, who were kind of quasi-regime affiliated. And if the goons are still out there, you know, demolishing houses and killing people and threatening people and intimidating people, announcements like the morality police one don't really matter for much. I think the other thing to kind of watch for here is you've seen some of these prominent Iranians who spoken out, right, be harassed or, or, you know, retribution against their families. And, you know, I was looking at those World Cup players and thinking, are all those guys going to go back to Iran? Me too. We may we may start to see some more prominent Iranians kind of relocate and the diaspora growing. Um, that's something that happens in these crackdowns. And, and in a way, the regime may want that, right? It may want the more prominent, like liberally inclined people out of the country. Um, and so they may be making life miserable uh, for a certain kind of Iranian uh, who's prominent to to just not want to stay, you know, so that essentially there's less organized or potential leadership of of different opposition movements. And again, like sometimes, you know, diasporas can organize from the outside too and try to keep the pressure on, but but it also can, you know, begin to to be a release valve that the regime is trying to essentially disincentivize people from staying there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So Ben, I don't know if you saw this, but um, there was a bit of a dust up between Iranian state TV and some of the the men's soccer players. Like there was a, the moment where, you know, this reporter uh, chastised the captain of the yeah. men's team for mispronouncing Iran. And, you know, our player was like incredibly graceful. Tyler Adams. And Kyler yeah. Adams was like graceful and like poised and like um, the answer was amazing. But I guess they were also harassing uh, 
the coach um, about, you know, U.S. military movements, inflation, like just hilarious, (laughs) like state TV propaganda shit that brought me back to the old days when we would have like, I forget the name of that Russian reporter. I was telling Roger about this, the Russian reporter in the briefing room. Oh, my God. We all like no one ever saw the guy write a single article uh, and people looked and because it was probably pretty clear that he was a, a spy. Well, he so shit, I wish I could remember his name. But the funny thing about that guy, right, is that he got crazier and crazier with each year. Yeah. And if you interacted with him, like, you know, off camera, he was just kind of pretty reasonable guy, like lived in D.C. And, you know, but then by the end, by like 2016, I would do these briefings and he'd come to them and it was literally like you know, Sergei Lavrov was questioning me at these briefings, yeah. you know, like uh, the the U.S. sponsoring coups in Ukraine and everywhere around the world. I mean, you could see the degradation of this this government uh, through just how hostile and strange and conspiracy theory laden this one relatively avuncular, you know, briefing room journalist got, you know. Yeah, the, the marching order has changed over time. Uh, speaking of Russian marching orders, so lots of Ukraine-Russia news today. So the thing that remains constant is that Russia... Their strategy is now just hammering Ukraine's energy grid uh, and doing so as it's about to get very cold. There is no international plan seemingly been for a way to fix the energy grid in the near future. The New York Times, actually, The Daily had a great piece on all of this today, and it's very worrisome because you just don't know what people are going to do. And there was another huge missile barrage today, Monday. Uh, and now we're at the point where Russia is just saying in press statements like, yeah, we're targeting Ukrainian power plants. They're not even trying to hide it. Now, Ukraine launched a pretty bold response to these attacks. They fired missiles at two uh, Russian military bases that were hundreds of miles over the Russian border. The Russians said it was a drone attack. One of these bases is where Russian long-range bombers are stationed. So that was pretty interesting. And the other thing I think it's worth kind of bundling in this bucket is the European Union, the G7, have agreed to put a $60 per barrel price cap on Russian oil. Initially, the cap was set at $65. They got negotiated down. But the the idea, the hope is to reduce Russia's oil revenue while not pushing them to completely stop production. The hard part about all of this is that, according to Bloomberg News last Friday, the $60 cap was well above the current price Russia is getting, which is closer to $45 or $48 a barrel. So we'll see if this is effective. But just pausing for a minute on this, like these cross-border strikes by Ukraine uh, and hitting targets into Russia has been a Biden administration red line for a while now. The fear is that it might lead Putin to escalate things in some way. But I'm just wondering, like at some point, if you're Zelensky and these missile barrages are raining down on Kiev and other cities day after day after day, hitting civilian infrastructure from planes that are often like deep in Russian airspace, when yeah. they're actually firing the missiles, like how do you tell Ukraine not to retaliate or to try to take out those targets? Like, I'm not sure that you can. You maybe just not arm them to do it, but well, I, I think the first thing is that these were drones, uh, apparently, and so that wasn't U.S. supplied right. weapons to strike right. in Russia. And that Biden, I'm sure the Biden people seems like they would be likely to discourage attacks into Russia generally, but. Their real red line has been like U.S. artillery and weapons being fired into Russia um, as escalatory. But the the use of drones is interesting because this war, as it goes on, like we see drones becoming more important with um, the Iranian made drones being these kind of kamikaze 
things launched at Ukrainian energy infrastructure. Now you have Ukraine using drones to strike hundreds of miles into Russia. And you're right, like the targets seem to be air bases with the logic that this is where Russia is mounting these attacks from. So why should these not be targets? And, and the Ukrainians had a kind of classic, like ambiguous trolling statement I saw one of them put out today that said like, Galileo said the world is round. And so if you fire missiles at us, they'll ultimately come back into Russia. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're just, you know, like, cool. I don't know. Yeah, it's cool, I guess. Um, but what it speaks to is a mentality where it's like, how can we absorb this degree of you know, indiscriminate humanitarian violence directed at us and not hit back into Russia? And, and so I think it's inevitable that there'll probably be more of that. And you have to think that, again, with time, the risks of escalation or the risks that Ukraine might be doing some things that makes the Biden administration uncomfortable, but Ukraine feels like they have to do it. Um, I think that that could continue to, to be part of the, the landscape here that we're dealing with. And this winter is a kind of volatile time, right? Because Ukraine can't like launch another offensive to try to recapture territory. So we're going to be in this space of like immense humanitarian hardship in Ukraine without a lot of good answers for it. And these kind of tit for tat escalations, it's just, man, the longer this war goes on, like obviously above all the most concerning thing is the suffering of the Ukrainians, but it's also going to be a time that, you know, something could escalate. Yes, for sure. And like, you know, there's a bit, a lot of back and forth about talks and whether the U.S. should be pushing for more peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, there was this letter from progressives uh, in Congress that we talked about uh, that that gently advocated for more emphasis from the Biden team for talks. People flipped out about it. And then we learned Jake Sullivan was already talking with the Russians, right? Last week, President Biden said he'd be willing to talk with Putin if Putin was, quote, looking for a way to end the war. Putin's spokesman suggested they were open to negotiations, but the starting point has to be the U.S. recognizing annexed territory as Russians. So not a serious proposal from the Russian side if you're you're Ukrainian. To that end, Ben, I saw today that Putin drove some sort of vehicle, a car, a truck or something across the now repaired bridge from Russia to Crimea. Folks probably remember the Ukrainian side had attacked that bridge uh, and blown it up and rendered parts of it inoperable. I'm sure that Putin had like every Russian missile defense system available deployed to protect him for his little his little drive. But the fact that he'd get that close to the front line I do think shows how important these annexed territories are to him and his whole persona and narrative about the war. So I, you know, I worry that that red line is um, pretty firmly held. I don't know. Yeah. And Crimea is obviously the firmest of, of the firm red lines on the Russian side. But yeah, I mean, right now, Ukraine's position is Russia has to vacate all territory, including Crimea. Um, Russia's position is all of their annexations have to go through, which, by the way, includes areas of Ukraine that they've lost in subsequent fighting. Uh, and the U.S. position is we support the Ukrainian position, but we're willing to talk. And so there's just not really a window. Uh, it's very important, as we've talked about, to keep diplomatic lines open. But but right now, nothing about the, the status quo of the war suggests that there's some middle ground here that could even be found, if you even if you wanted that, right? And so yeah. uh, I, I just, I, I think we, you know, there's going to have to, almost certainly be more chapters of fighting before like the balance tips for one of the parties to actually make talks potentially lead to something. Yeah. We go in circles over whether to have talks over here and, you know, there's a very important actor named Vladimir Putin in Russia who was, uh, 
pretty big say in the matter. But Ben, and the one, you, one thing I'd say, Tommy, is that like sometimes in wars, like you can have talks about just kind of alleviating immediate humanitarian suffering. Mm-hmm. But in this war, the Russians don't seem to care about that at all. So no. like even like, you know, temporary ceasefires to allow people to move someplace or to get food to people like even that doesn't seem like it's going to happen. So the only thing that they've been able to successfully talk about are things of like international dimensions, like the food crisis and trying to get some food out or getting some international nuclear inspectors into the nuclear plant. Some limited None of that has to do with resolving swaps. the war. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, but yeah, you're right. Like humanitarian suffering is very much part of the plan for Vladimir Putin and the Russian yeah. side. But he is learning, Ben, that even being a, a genocidal dictator can't protect you from American tabloids. So the latest fodder uh, is just asking questions, uh, headlines like, uh, did Putin fall down the stairs and poop his <laughs> pants, basically. So this comes, <laughs> the sourcing in places like the New York Post, who are running with this, comes from a Telegram channel called General SVR, which claims it is operated by an anonymous former Russian foreign intelligence service official. Let's be honest, it's probably some sort of <laughs> intel op. I don't care. It's yeah. fun. Uh, the Telegram channel reported that Putin fell down a staircase, landed on his tailbone, and then defecated himself involuntarily, they note. Uh, this is all part of broader speculation about his health and claims that Putin has Parkinson's or cancer or something very serious. So again, Ben, none of this is substantiated. But do you think there's a chance that Vladimir Putin recently visited a McDonald's with former Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison? <laughs> I mean, the idea of pooping his pants like as being a part of this was um, was a nice touch. Uh, I, it is like just this thing about Putin's health has just been the great unknown because there's yeah. so much speculation about it. And there's a lot of smoke, right? Like he doesn't appear that much. He, you know, there's less of like the, you know, riding horses bare chested. There are these reports of him disappearing for weeks at a time. That's all true. But we just don't really see under the hood like what what's actually there, you know? Um, so in that, in that gray zone, like putting out, you know, that he fell down the stairs and pooped his pants. I mean, uh, nothing wrong with that. I mean, <laughs> and it traveled very far. Uh, got a lot of pickup. Um, yeah. also right before we started recording, I saw a news report that Putin has just signed into law, uh, a law banning the expression of LGBT identity in Russia. So just a reminder that while he is uh, a genocidal monster in Ukraine, he's also a piece of shit back home. So he's got yeah. that going for him. Yeah. And that the LGBT crackdown started, you know, in early in Putin's return to the presidency. So like 2013, 14, it just shows you that these kinds of hateful ideologies can pretend like somebody moving in a much more aggressive direction. In other words, like what he's doing at home and the kind of regime he's built there is pretty connected to to what he's doing in, in Ukraine. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. 
Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. So Ben, uh, turning to Twitter and our friend Elon Musk. So I had a very um, lame uh, weekend where I didn't leave the house much. So I uh, I ended up listening to about an hour and a half of Elon's Twitter space. Uh, and I asked him a question. Somehow these right wing goons let me. How did, you, how did you do that? Do you like raise your hand or something? I how just requested. I requested. Yeah. I All of a sudden they were calling on me and I was like, oh, my God, I, I like sort of hadn't I didn't think it was going to happen. So I sort of had half prepared a thought. But basically someone had asked him whether Twitter would do anything to support uh protesters in iran in china and he was just like uh, uh, uh then just like ducked it completely ducked it so i followed up on that and was basically like you say that freedom of expression is critical to the future of humanity does that include freedom of expression for chinese people and iranians and will twitter do anything to help them and he got very annoyed with me and was like that's a dumb question you know you can't even get on twitter in china that's a government's decision blah 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 but like Hey, man, you're the richest man in the world. You own a satellite company, a space rocket company, and now Twitter. Like, you could voice support for the protesters in China, but we all know you won't, right? Because you need their manufacturing base and you want their market. He also got asked about Assange and Snowden and whether they deserve to be pardoned. It was really interesting, Ben, because he didn't take the bait. Like, he wouldn't say what they wanted to hear, which was that they should get pardoned. He actually said something more like, 
I think that these are decisions that should be made by a jury, which really pissed everybody off because they all thought like, oh, no, he's going to get prosecuted. But then he put up a Twitter poll. He promised to put up a Twitter poll about it. So that was his like uh, get out of jail free. And then this one I really wanted to talk about with you because Elon tweeted the following quote. I've seen a lot of concerning tweets about the recent Brazil election. If those tweets are accurate, it's possible that Twitter personnel gave preference to left wing candidates. So he was replying to someone who was suggesting that like the Twitter files and claims that the Biden team was colluding with Twitter might have happened again with left wing candidates in Brazil. And it just like struck me as like such an unbelievably dangerous thing because the transfer of power from Bolsonaro to Lula hasn't even happened. And he's just like opening this can of worms down there. Yeah, a lot to say about this. I mean, first of all, you were on this Twitter space this weekend and that that is you know, kind of sad, but <laughs> I was watching you, LSU Georgia at the same time. I just want to put. Well, that but up. here, here, here's what you're going to say about it, Tommy. I guarantee that if you had over a hundred billion dollars, you'd find something better to do with your time over the weekend. Oh my is god, is that a fair yes. assessment? Yeah. So like, he was doing I mean, it how from lame his private is it? Plane for like two hours. Exactly. So how lame is it that this guy who could be like, you know, tinkering with rockets, like he, he wants to be in Twitter spaces, arguing with like people online, like. Kind of, kind of weird uh, window in his side. The weirdest need, collection of little right wing trolls, too, man. It was like crypto people and like right wing kind of dudes. Yeah, you know, he's gravitated to kind of the dregs of Twitter, you know, um, to to be a part of his trolling army. Then on the China thing, his his response is totally disingenuous because yeah, like Twitter is not accessible in China unless you know you have VPNs and things you can get around it. But it's also the case that there is a pretty dynamic you know uh, conversation happening on Twitter around the world that includes, by the way, Chinese diaspora, Chinese exiles. Exactly. Um, This information does flow around. Twitter is a global bloodstream, and he knows that. Um, And he's ducking it. Um, And and so the question is, would he go along with efforts to slow the spread of information about Chinese protest or what happens if Chinese bots are like spreading and spamming, which he claims to not want to have happen on Twitter, these stories about protest. There are lots of reports that that is happening. There yep, are lots of reports right that there's this flood of fucking Chinese Communist Party spam. There, there have been targeting of, of people's accounts who are pro-protest. And yeah, Elon Musk has enormous business interests in China that are part of the Tesla supply chain, among others. And I have no faith whatsoever that this right-wing, I guess, or like techno bro crypto goober is going to like take a stance for free expression. Free expression to him seems to mean the freedom to troll like random people on Twitter um, and, and let a bunch of disgusting stuff back on his platform. And, and then that gets to the Brazil point. Like, first of all, what he said is incredibly dangerous. You're right, because don't think for a second that Bolsonaro and all supporters aren't going to grab onto that and use it as part of their effort to delegitimize Lula, to kind of paralyze Brazilian politics. It's really dangerous what he's playing with. And it's also total bullshit because the reality is that Bolsonaro and his supporters have been like pouring disinformation and misinformation onto platforms like Twitter. So, of course, there's likely more content moderation directed at the people that are spreading the most misinformation and disinformation. So either he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about or he's so cynical that he's like just, oh, where can I light a match and light a fire? Brazil. It was a time that I felt the most gross about this whole Elon Musk Twitter thing because it spoke to the fact that there's no bottom to the hornet's nest that this guy will poke just to get attention. 100%. And look, 
in fairness to Elon, right, Twitter is not the only platform that has problems. And it's maybe it's one of the most powerful, but maybe not the most powerful at the moment. And Facebook obviously is. But yeah. TikTok is probably second these days. And Forbes had a fascinating story about TikTok and U.S. politics. So everybody knows TikTok is owned by ByteDance, which is a Chinese company. The authors found that uh, accounts run by a company called Media Links TV have been posting videos about U.S. politics and politicians right before the midterms that got tens of millions of views. Ben, any guess who owns or controls uh, Media Links TV? Well, I would guess some nexus to the Chinese Communist Party. Nailed it. CCTV, the, yeah, the yeah, Chinese yeah, Central yeah. Television. Yeah. Yeah. It's the Chinese Communist Party's news outlet. So it, Media Links is actually a registered foreign agent in the U.S., but there's no real way to know that or who's behind the accounts they control unless you click on the link on the account profile, which have other names like, you know, like Twitter news or, you know, it's like talk news or some shit like that. And it says in the bio, quote, material distributed by Media Links TV LLC on behalf of CCTV, more info at DOJ comma DC. But like, A, very few people are going to click that bio to get that information. Few are going to know what any of that means. It's just like a blizzard of acronyms. So interestingly, the Forbes report found that the videos tend to favor Democrats, criticize Republicans. It wasn't entirely the case that it was sort of like pro-Democrat. There was a bunch of stuff critical of Biden. But again, like TikTok is owned by a Chinese company. Most major uh, social media sites label content that comes from state controlled media. TikTok clearly does not. These, you know, the the content this, these accounts were pushing tended to be divisive, but so is like most political commentary, I guess. But it did feature clips uh, with Alex Jones and then uh, clips from Viktor Orban talking about how the West was fighting with itself and about to collapse. So this is seems like a, a real and growing problem here with TikTok that, I, frankly, Elon is actually distracting us from. They should be talking about this. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, the three most important platforms, I would say, right now uh, for the receipt of information. Google's a little different. Um, it's obviously really important, but uh, one is owned by the Chinese, well, not the Chinese Communist Party, but as this indicates, like, let's just say there's a hand somewhere in the background of TikTok mm -hmm. uh, that goes back to the Chinese government because anything that is, is, even if it's privately owned in China, we've seen in recent years, that leads to the CCP. Facebook owned by Mark Zuckerberg and Twitter owned by Elon Musk. Like, the Chinese Communist Party, Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk are not the people... <laughs> that I feel the most confident about mm. owning the information flow that is going to billions of people every day. We have a big problem with the flow of information and, and who controls it and what incentives they have. And ultimately, there are going to have to be some solutions that involve the U.S. government in this. And we've talked about TikTok and how it's hard for me to see the U.S. government allowing that to be such a prominent space, um, particularly for American young people, without any kind of knowledge about you know, how decisions are made, how this algorithm works or set of algorithms work. So uh, you know, this feels kind of unsustainable, but there's also not an obvious solution because if it's an American company, all you have to be is really, really rich as Elon Musk proves. And if it's a Chinese company, you got to answer the Chinese Communist Party. So yep. uh, there's not a lot of great alternatives right now. Maybe we should have Rokana on, Congressman Rokana, and talk about like what is or could be happening in Congress to regulate these companies. Because I, I'm at the point where I like, I get to this point of the conversation and I have no idea who is actually doing meaningful work on the next step, which is like fixing it. There's work on like regulation around the kind of the product design of how the platforms work. Then there are the antitrust pushes to kind of break up big tech. Right. And, and those two things kind of have to come together, like the ownership structures and the product model. 
but getting that done in a kind of divided Congress feels almost the, impossible, but the, it's not a reason not to pursue it. The antitrust conversations to me are, are like important, but they almost always miss the elephant in the room, which is Apple, right? Like the thing Elon's talking about, <laughs> yeah. he acted like it was new information. Is this Apple 30% tax on all revenue that comes through the app store? It's like, one, that's been known and reported on for many years. There's actually a massive fight going on in the courts uh, between Apple and the creators of Fortnite. But two, like, yeah, you're right. It is like that's a massive tax. And like as a podcaster, I only imagine if, you know, what chunk of our listeners get episodes through the Apple podcast app. What if they one day decided they get 30 percent of our revenue? Like, What would we do about it? We have no recourse. Or if we were an app, they could just decide to not let us be in the app store, you know, and so that's just enormous power. So this whole thing is out of whack. It does feel to me like people are also kind of fishing around for information wherever they can find it, you know, like people getting a little tired of these big platforms, I think, but at least in in the United States. But that doesn't mean there's a lot of uh, obvious alternatives to it. Yeah. Two things I wanted to just mention that we're watching before we get to to our last uh, topic here. Uh, that we'll probably get to these in a later date. I mean, Ben, I, I continue to be concerned about uh, Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu filling out his cabinet with some truly scary right-wing men uh, in very key roles. It will be important to see uh, what, if anything, the U.S. does or says about it. Um, indicators so far makes me think that they maybe aren't going to say anything publicly that any pushing that might happen will be behind the scenes, which will feel very frustrating and unsatisfying to people like us. And then The Guardian reported that NDTV, which is one of India's few remaining independent news channels, is about to be taken over by a billionaire uh, with ties to Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, which would be, frankly, like a pretty big step down the path. And it might be a long path in this case but down the path towards kind of the Victor Orbanization of India's democracy if all these major outlets are tied to parties. So two trends I don't like. No, that's right. I mean, it is like the Orban model, right? It's like, you know, you you pack the courts with judges. Modi's done that. Uh, You buy up the media and turn it into a mouthpiece for yourself. Modi's done that. You turn social media into a massive tool of of intimidation against your critics. You know, Modi's done that. Um, You know, he, he, you kind of have this corrupt crony system where rich guys are financing your politics and you you know probably take care of them on the side like this does look like the Orban model you know in, in in a massive scale a country of a billion people and the common thread between India and Israel is that we see this democratic backsliding happening right in front of our eyes but for for geopolitical and political purposes the kind of the US doesn't say anything about it you know and it makes it hard to kind of frame, the, the, unfortunately, it's kind of why the democracy versus autocracy thing kind of feels mostly like a a West versus Russia and China thing, mm-hmm. you know, because the, the the global you know fault lines of democracy are more in places like India and Indonesia and and you know to some extent Israel and 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 the administration has always had a hard time finding ways to to balance its interests um, once it gets beyond kind of you know, Europe and, and the US and, and you know, maybe Japan and South Korea and Australia. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so those issues we'll come back to. So last one before we get to Ben's interview, 
Last week, we briefly discussed Prince William uh, and Kate's visit to Boston. I basically used it as an opportunity to be an asshole and to rag on the royals for visiting Boston in the winter, which no one should ever do. But I hereby take back all of that criticism because the good people of Boston have delivered just comedy for all of us. So William and Kate went to a Boston Celtics game where Bostonians greeted them with long USA, USA chants. And I raised this not to offend our listeners in the UK or to be engaged in jingoism, but I just do love it, Ben, when a city completely lives up to a stereotype like that. It just like plays to type, you know, a bunch of fucking meathead Celtics fans chanting USA is very funny. Yeah. I mean, uh, like, cause we've all been at games where yes. like you've had a few beers and they show somebody on the jumbotron that, you know, you, you have like a visceral <laughs> mass response to yeah, the, kids the, can. Fact, <laughs> the fact that in this case, it was like the, the, you know, the next in line to the throne and, and his wife and all, all, all just like a classic USA chant that, that did, you know, some demonstrative shows of patriotism, like, you know, got a little complicated in the Trump years, but uh-huh. like, that's definitely one I can get behind. I will say too, Tommy, that Camilla got in trouble again uh, around some allegations of racism based on an experience that somebody had with her staff. Now it's somebody saying that you yeah. know, she inquired where she's from and she's obviously from Britain, but the insinuation was like, go back. Well, you know, to tell this story, there was, a, there was an activist who visited Buckingham Palace, right? And yeah. someone on staff, a staffer for the palace said something really, really racist. Yeah, they were like vetting her. And, and you know, part of it was, even though she's a Briton, where they were like pressing her on like where she was from, right? right? Which touches like the deepest chord of like the racism that I think a lot of people feel in Britain is that even if you've been there, you're born there, um, you're not seen as yeah. from there. You know, you have dark skin. Um, yeah, exactly. And, 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 and so I also noticed too, just like putting a pin in it as a rural correspondent here, Harry and Meghan dropped like the the trailer for their Netflix documentary in which they tell their side of the story the same time that William and Kate were in Boston. Right? Oh, that's good so it's stuff. Kind of like, hey, we're getting in this new cycle. Harry's got a book out next year. We don't know much about it, but it's called Spare, which suggests to you how he hmm. feels about how he's treated. So there's going to be uh, more content. Uh, the one thing the royal family's always been good at is creating content for for people like us to talk about. They were content creators. Um, so, you know, look, look, admittedly, some uh, Bostonians, some fans were moved and quite emotional about the royal visit. Uh, let me play you a clip from Celtic star Jalen Brown real quick. <laughs> um, I know you guys have played in front of a lot of celebrities, but what was it like to compete in front of royalty tonight? The Prince and Princess of Wales were in the building. Um, it was just a regular game to me. <laughs> So there you can hear it. You can hear you can hear the emotion in his voice. Uh, I'll remember yeah. that game forever, Ben. But the the best coverage, the best thing I've I've read was a story from the Boston Globe, which ran a story with the headline: "The Royals were in Somerville. People were worried about what that meant for trips to Market Basket. That's a uh, that's a supermarket. Here's some key quotes: Bad day to go to Market Basket. One resident wrote on a Reddit page for happenings around Somerville. I bet the traffic will be terrible." Uh, another quote, <laughs> I have always disliked the royal family, another person wrote on Twitter Wednesday, but closing down st- street access to Market Basket makes their reign intolerable. Uh, <laughs> and then the last one was a, a local a city councilman named Jefferson Thomas Scott. 
He was just like learning about this in real time and trying to provide logistical updates to his constituents on Twitter about traffic and stuff. And he said, uh, you know, he was trying to like outline the reasons it might be bad. And he noted that he couldn't estimate the number of, quote, looky loos who might show up to gawk at the royal family uh, and add to the traffic woes and said, quote, sorry for the inconvenience. I didn't invite these people. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when you you consider... Yeah, when you consider that this is the place where like kind of the revolution started, right? Mm-hmm. You know, with like the Tea Party and you know Boston Massacre, a lot and, of Irish people, and obviously Lexington <laughs> and Concord. Well, that's the thing. So you have that, and then you have like this is like the most Irish place I can think of outside of Ireland, right? Yeah. Um, Chicago might have uh, something to say about that in New York, but to me, like Boston, you know, so like there's like. This is like a not uncomplicated place for the rules to visit. No. I, I don't know who. Why, why did they pick this? They, you know, they could have picked a, a, somewhere with like a slightly more obvious uh, welcome party. Um, but hey, yeah. you know, I guess they they uh, they went they went right in the middle of it. Yeah, I think like some of the things they did, they visited like some climate tech thing. I don't. Yeah, you're right. They could find this kind of. I don't know. They could have found message events all over the place and not gotten the uh, the royals were in Somerville. <laughs> coverage from the Boston Globe. Uh, Okay, that is it for the news. We are going to take a quick break. And when you come back, you will hear Ben's interview with Maria Ressa, uh, one of the most inspiring people you'll hear from. So you will not want to miss that. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Well, we are very pleased to welcome back to Pod Save the World, Maria Ressa, who is the co-founder of Rappler, the Filipino news organization. Uh, she's also a Nobel Peace Prize winner uh, in 2021. Um, and most importantly for this interview, she recently released a book that all of you should pick up. It's called How to Stand Up to a Dictator, The Fight for Our Future. Maria, it's so good to see you. It's good to speak with you. Like, I want to start with a book and, and just a kind of sure. a broad question. Um you know, what's interesting is you've been so in the middle of criminal charges, uh, the fight for democracy in the Philippines, the fight for, 
you know, much healthier detoxified social media globally, which we'll talk about. But, you know, this is also a memoir um, and it covers your life story, but also kind of your life as a journalist through these changing times. And I just wanted to ask you to start, like, what was it like to kind of pull back the camera and look at the span of time in which so much has changed? Did it give you a perspective that that maybe you didn't have until you you had to take on the exercise of writing this book? Yeah, I mean, Ben, you know this this from writing a book, right? All of a sudden, like people kept asking, why, why, why? When, you know, how do you have courage? What? When I felt like I wasn't actually doing anything out of the ordinary, like I felt I was only doing what I was supposed to be doing and what I've always done, and so pulling back uh, reminded me of several things. And they, and even though my editor cut. Like I wrote 400 pages and he cut 200 pages. Um, I think you still get the whys, which is that in many ways, um, this is this is my love affair with journalism. What journalism is, how journalism's mission, the standards and ethics really shaped the person I became. And then before that, how, you know, when you're a broadcast TV, when you're a television broadcast journalism, journalist in conflict areas, in a war zone, and you have to like kind of compress 400 years of history in the present moment, and you have two minutes to do it, and you have to do it in three bullet points, you know this, you yeah. get trained in a particular way. And and I realized that the way I made those quick judgment calls came from these values that I had, you know, as a as as a Filipino moving to the United States as an immigrant kid, um, moving it, a product of the public school system in New Jersey. And then, you know, that very elite university that I attended. And then finally, really, I was shaped by by journalism. And, and I hated that this word objectivity was, you know, it's something that is part of the craft of journalism, which is the process of it, the very expensive process that the internet essentially hollowed out. But it isn't, it isn't possible for one reporter to be, in quotes, objective, because I replaced, for example, a six foot two white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male <laughs> as a reporter in Manila. And here I'm, I am a foot shorter. I'm Filipino American. I was really young compared to him. The stories we chose were different. The way we attacked the stories, even the way we interview is different, right? So all of that plays into this. And I think, and I guess the last part was that I became a journalist because information is power. And what I started seeing beginning in 2016, actually, if you go back to when the technology platforms took over the gatekeeping role and abdicated responsibility for the public sphere, when news organizations lost our gatekeeping powers, everything began to turn upside down very in slow motion. I mean, in the Philippines, I called it death by a thousand cuts, right? Like we keep yeah. getting gashed and we're kind of bleeding out. But each gash seems, you know, bearable. So we keep going until you like fall down because you've lost too much blood. That's the state of democracy globally. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. To get into the social media conversation, like after you leave CNN and, and after you're at a, a large broadcaster in the Philippines and you start Rappler, one way to get into this conversation, I, I noticed something in the book that was really interesting to me, uh, the mood meter. Um, yes. Which is how you kind of measured 
the reaction that people would have to different stories, were they happy, were they angry, were they sad? And, and, and to me, it sets up this whole conversation pretty well. <laughs> like, what, yes. did you, what did you learn from the mood meter about how people were consuming and reacting to information in an increasingly social media age? I love the question. I mean, part of it was because I always knew, like all the studies had always told us that 80 to 90% of how we make decisions in our lives is not based on what we think. Rationally, it's based on what we feel, right? Even medical uh, research has shown, right? That if, if different parts of your of your thinking brain was inaccessible, you would make certain choices. So, so this was... The mood meter was like four four years before the emojis of Facebook. But the goal here, and I got the idea from a, a research project that was at Harvard when students were given blackberries, a hundred students, and then in the data that that they were able to get from that study, they were able to find you know the the hottest night spots for one where people went. But so let let me pull that back. The idea for the mood meter was that you would then, it's not statistical, it's not, but you would click a mood. And then the moods we chose, I, I spoke to the to the statistical survey groups in the Philippines and I was like, please tell me which moods we should, we have six moods that we can go in. And what I wanted to do was to be able to track a story and how it moves emotionally through our community. Um, and that was exactly what we did. No algorithms, no nothing else. It's just like a quick um, kind of you know, you read the story, how does it make you feel? And you don't even really know exactly what we're asking you. So it's, it's not rational thinking. So you click. And what we found, and this is, this is part of what we saw, we could then track how certain stories move through society, what moods were there. And then at the end of every year, we would do the year in moods. And this is when I, part of what bolstered my idea that information operations had really shifted our society because from 2012 until 2016, the dominant mood every year was happy. You, you know, 80%, um, 75 to 80% of our, our audience were Filipinos. Um, then actually the United States was number two. Indonesia was number three, right? Mm. So these were, we could, we could see these in, in the analytics. And inevitably it wasn't until moving into the 2016 elections where the spike in anger rose and it was linked to the campaign of, then Mayor Rodrigo Duterte, and it has been angry until this year. That's so, so, okay, so that was the idea. And then the other thing that I wanted to do, and this is no longer on the site because we're revamping it, but, you know, how about if you navigate the site, not through um, topics, not through uh, articles you're looking for, not through search, but through moods. You want to be happy today. So then you can click and the mood navigator in the front page would bring you to stories that others judge to be happy. It was such a rudimentary idea of how we can organize differently. It was an experiment. And then I realized much later when I saw the emojis come out on Facebook and then I could see the way algorithms would work. We didn't do any of that. So this was pretty straightforward. Other academic researchers from Italy, from the United States, they went and looked at the moods and then they they came out with academic studies on it. But I just loved 
the idea that, you know, we could track the way a story, we could see how a story makes our society feel. Yeah, it's such an interesting concept, right? Because, I mean, I, if I think about this, like, when I consumed news, I don't know, 15 years ago, right, when I was kind of starting out on the Obama campaign, you know, a, a good story is just something that would make you think, you know? Um, yes. And, 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 and now, if I'm honest, like, yeah, like anger is probably what is most likely to get me to click on something. And and you've talked about this a lot. And we actually, it's funny, we we talked about this earlier on this episode of Pod Save the World, that the social media companies, there's so much focus on, on content moderation now, particularly because of Twitter and Elon Musk. But um, anybody who really looks at this gets at the idea that it's the product design and the distribution, yes. not the content moderation. Because if the entire platform is designed to trigger people, right, to make them angry because they're more likely to click on something if, if, if they're angry, um, then information spreads and then they make money on advertising. So to, to pull back, how do you address this product design? I mean, there's, I mean, this is the big question, obviously, but like government regulation is hard to get through, say, the U.S. Congress. Um, the tech companies have a profit model tied to advertising. Um, yeah. w- w- how do you think that governments and tech companies and consumers can try to alter this product design so that facts travel more than conspiracy theories, so that anger is not the only motivating force uh, yeah. that's spreading yeah. sensationalist content? Oh, I love your question, Ben. I mean, so so first of all, I think it's harmful to our health. I mean, you know, and it's not even what I think, right? Let me put it this way. Why did we put regulations on alcohol? Uh, why why is there an age to when you can begin to drink alcohol? Because at a certain point you lose control, right? You so so why is this not <laughs> age regulated? You know why are if you look at the the documents that were released by Francis Haugen, the internal documents, and it's more than ten thousand pages. They know the impact of this of Instagram on young girls. Yeah, the impact is bad. There are healthful problems with this, right? You have increased uh, anorexia, you have you have increased uh, suicide rates. Um, so so that's the first, right? Why is there not a better business bureau for our emotions and our minds? Because yeah. in the end, this business model manipulates our our real world actions through our emotions. And it's insidious. I think that's the part that is that needs to be transparent. And and I do think I think part of the problem in the United States is it it's seen through political lenses. When it's a biological problem, it's like drugs. <laughs> Yuri Andropov, you know, the former yeah. KGB chairman, actually compared it to cocaine disinformation. He said disinformatia is like cocaine. You take it once or twice, you're okay. But if you take it all the time, you become a changed person. Well. All of us on social media are taking this all the time because that's the design of the business model. I mean, the other thing that I would say is look at the values, right, that that is completely that has turned us into the upside down, because essentially when lies spread faster than facts, that is the design. You turn the entire, all of society's values upside down. Because it's like in your family, you tell your kids, lie, lie all the time and I'll keep rewarding you. If you lie more and you double down more, I'll reward you even more. Yeah, That's design, right? So, So I think that's, part of it is the societal harms are 
are now quantifiable, and you can't actually say that um, that it's not because the research is there. We need to stop looking at it from political lenses. Call a spade a spade, and just like with, uh, I think we talked about this also with with genetic technology, CRISPR technology, uh, the two the two scientists who discovered it won a Nobel Prize, but almost instantaneously because we could act like gods by customizing an embryo, a baby, the Western world put laws in place for that. This is the same thing. You know, yeah. this, we are literally creating the next, at a species level. So, okay, so we have the personal psychological. We're changing the way people act in the world. You saw how far it can go, information operations and information warfare. Sociologically, in groups, we're affected. But the bigger one is emergent human behavior. We are creating species-wide behavior because of the scale of the tech that is actually taking out the best of humanity and encouraging the, the, the shape of our species to the worst of who we are. So why can we not regulate that? It's not as yeah. simple as Washington makes it out to be, but it is biological. It is health-related. It is There are other industries that we've done this to and successfully regulated, yeah. but of course the toughest one is the tobacco lobby. That's the that's that's what you could point it towards. Yeah, no, I think and and look, and and anybody really wants to think about this, just consider the fact that social media companies describe users, right? Like, in the it's the same language used for for drugs, right? And so, right. Uh, I take your point completely that the government and frankly these tech companies need to realize the public health impulse to regulate not just content moderation, but the design of a product that is destroying our brains, whether it's making our, our girls and I have two daughters filled with anxiety or whether it's spreading disinformation that can lead to insurrections at the Capitol. I did want to ask right. you a question about journalism and its role in this, yeah. re recognizing that it's in an ecosystem. And I don't say this to impugn journalists in any way. I had an interesting experience in the later Obama years when there was a lot of conspiracy theories are really catching on, you know? Yeah. And there'd be these really good journalists that traveled yes. with us that I'd known for six, seven years. Yeah. And they're suddenly writing stories about some crazy, you know, conspiracy theory about know, Hillary Clinton's email server or something. And when I would go to them, they would say, I'd be like, why are you writing about this? You know, let, you could write about policy. And they're like, well, that's what my editor told me to write about. And then I was senior enough that I could actually go to the editor and say, yeah, hey, how come you're assigning this story to this really good reporter? And the editor would say, well, that's what corporate wants. And sometimes I could even go to corporate and say, why are you guys doing this? And they'd say, that's what the viewers or readers want. And they're not necessarily wrong. If you look at cable television, Tucker Carlson has the highest rated show. So what do you do as a journalist in a world in which what sells is more sensational stuff? It might even be conspiracy theory that creates a lot of incentives. How do you have a, a relationship between journalists and their audience that is not a race to the bottom? <laughs> you know, and Rappler, oh I think, gosh. has tried to do this. But if you learn things there that other yeah. media companies might take away. Yeah, no, the, it's a fantastic question. And, you know, of course, my friends and I, both here and in the Philippines, my journalist friends, we grapple with this every day. So, so first understand how we got to this point, right? Because the main delivery platform for news actually chooses lies 
right? So, so it's beyond sensationalism. Like in, when it used to be television, you would, it would be, you would be sensational, right? And I, I remember when a current affairs first came up and it turned the big three networks upside down, right? Mm-hmm. So it, that was just form. But then when, when social media came in, it became lies. And that means, journalism, the journalism I do, the journalism that is mission-driven, the journalism that holds power to account, cannot compete in distribution. So what it did is social media, the tech platforms commodified news, turned it into page views, and then more than that, made it conform to a system that rewards bad journalism. Right. So mm-hmm. so there's there's that. And then if you're running, say, I mean, I would hate to be the one running CNN today. If you're running CNN, if you're running the big networks and you're trying, it's like your audience are on drugs. They already are. And you're trying to give them vegetables. Right. So how do you do that? Well, the way I dealt with it is is in Rappler, we continue to keep our investigative journalism separate. Our reporters never see the page view numbers. It's actually mid-level management in Rappler that sees it. And then we understand that if we were only to follow what goes viral or what gets the widest distribution, that it would be kind of crappy journalism. Then we, we keep them separate. So there's like the sugar. What is the sugar that brings them in? It's crime, entertainment. It's entertainment, lifestyle, right? So we bring them into our funnel and then we try to do a recirculation that gets them to eat the vegetables. So we lure them in with sugar and then give them vegetables. This is still an old world idea because I'm an old world journalist because I think that the mission must stand, right? So here's the problem. Given that you can't dive into this slippery slope because the mission will die with it. Your journalists will die with it. Your mission will die with it. So that's part of the reason that I've really focused first on getting rid of the original problem. If this is a polluted river, right, instead of like picking up a glass of water and cleaning up that water and throwing it back in the river and then trying to clean up, you know, that's content moderation. That's a -a whack-a-mole game. You go to the factory that churns out the pollutant and and stop the pollutant before you can begin to rehabilitate the river. And that will take years. So this is the problem journalism faces because our audiences, especially the younger ones, you know, the ones who grow up on, on, on social media, the ones who get their news from social media in the Philippines, everyone gets their news yeah. from, from Facebook, right? So, so that's, it's not a satisfactory answer right now, but I think that's part of the reason you've seen kind of a race to the bottom. Because if we're only following page views, which is what every newsroom now looks at, right, then you will, it is a race to the bottom. Because the way the social media amplifies those and gets traffic back to a website, a news website, is rewarding bad things, yeah. right? So again, it depends on the community, but. Um, short-term legislation, actually medium-term is legislation. In the short-term, what we did is we found another sustainable business model. And in that way, I guess I kind of have to thank President Duterte because when he tried to shut us down in January 2018, (laughs) we lost 49% of our advertising revenue in four months. 
And so we wouldn't have survived if we didn't find an alternative model. That's the other reason that we can continue doing what we're doing. And news organizations have to do this because the old advertising system we used to have is nothing like micro-targeting the advertising system that is now used online. Yeah. No, I'm, I think um, that in your idea, I mean, there's talk about this in local news here in the U.S., like draw people in with sports coverage and then give them the investigative journalism. <laughs> but I, uh, it's a bridge to solving the structural problems. I did want to ask you about Southeast Asia because it's a region that I yeah. focused on a lot in, in government. I love it's, you know, it's my favorite region in the world to visit. And I think it's so fundamental to the future of democracy. You know, I when I was in government, I, I came to think of like Indonesia, the Philippines and Malaysia as kind of like a good test for the global health of democracy. Yes. Because they're these countries that they're, they're, yes. you know, they've been through relatively recent transitions. They have very vibrant civil society cultures, but then deep rooted corruption and and you could kind of take the the measure of the health of democracy in the same way that the treatment of journalists, I think, is a good me- measuring stick. As I look at it today, yes, you're in the Philippines there where you've got the son of the dictator, Marcos, in charge. You yourself, I don't know, they've charged you with you know, 10 times for crimes you didn't commit. Um, that's obviously not looking too great. Malaysia is kind of bizarre because Anwar Ibrahim is now the prime minister of Malaysia, um, which if you told me that 10 years ago, I would have thought that was a sign of enormous positivity, although it's a little mixed. Indonesia, like, is kind of hanging on, but nobody quite knows who's coming after Jokowi. Like, what, you know, yeah. a lot of our listeners don't follow us that closely. Like, just describe how you see democracy, not just in the Philippines, but but in Southeast Asia today. And as a journalist, as a member of civil society, yeah. like, what's the picture? Positive and negative. I mean, like everything else, I guess, right? But the the positive part, and this is, I do think, where social media has helped, is that the younger generation, much like the United States, are more progressive, far more progressive than than I think you know my age group when when we were growing up. That's that's one. They see a global landscape. Of course, they also sometimes get get targeted by information operations. China, for example, has targeted all these countries, right? Um, There is Russian disinformation that has targeted these countries as well. Um, But the negative part is that um, in in so many ways, what do our countries have? We strive for the ideal. I mean, and the Philippines is a a perfect example. We are, uh, you know, uh, the history of the Philippines, 300 years under colonized by Spain and then 50 years under the United States. We spent 300 years, three centuries in a convent and 50 years in Hollywood. Um, (laughs) Our constitution, our constitution is patterned after the United States. In fact, our first constitution had to be vetted by the, by a U.S. government. I wrote this stuff in the book, but what's interesting to me now is, you know, we have a bill of rights and then we're in a different place because We've re-elected Marcos. Did you notice we're back to the future in all of the Malaysia uh, elected Anwar Ibrahim yeah. after former Prime Minister Mahathir was re-elected, but what became Prime Minister again, right? And so, so we're back to like kind of in Malaysia, 1997 levels, except Anwar hmm. is much grayer and older, right? He was supposed to, he was a Deputy Prime Minister in 1997, and he was supposed to succeed as Prime Minister. And then Indonesia. Indonesia's the last one, world's largest Muslim population, this you, you know, but uh, a country that is defining um, what free press means, uh, 
but also has very strong religious. And yeah. under almost 32 years of Suharto, there were many things that were never talked about, including ethnic, religious, because this created violence. It hasn't been that way for a long time. Jok- Jokowi, the president, um, came as uh, as a governor and then and then has kept relative peace and prosperity. I think that we are like the United States in creative destruction, just in a different area. Like the the way that we saw the world before, there's still strands of that and sometimes you assume that it's still the old world, but it's really the we're, we have to create something new. And the hard part is we keep going back because as the world becomes more uncertain. This is also a trend we saw starting in 2014, especially in countries that had strongman re- rulers. When the world becomes more uncertain, there's a nostalgia for the past yeah. and and names that are familiar and, and promises that you know probably won't happen, but the names, this kind of strongman, when it is too confusing or or too complex or too hard, that you just want someone to make the call for you. And I think we're somewhere, we're navigating this. I mean, we've elected President Marcos again. Well, not the son, but yeah, we have yeah. another Marcos. 36 years after the People Power Revolt ousted the family, charged with, you know, stealing 10 billion U.S. dollars in 1986 dollars. So one of the things that's happening in the Philippines now is, the government, President Marcos, has proposed a sovereign fund. Talk about all the countries. A sovereign fund that, you know, the the critics are just pointing out, this could be just like Malaysia's yeah. one MDB, right? Yeah. So what are the safeguards in place when corruption? Oh, last, our institutions are weak. Corruption is endemic. Law and order is weak at times. So oh, what a long way. I'm really glad our countries are your, our favorites of yours. I think the reason I chose... Southeast Asia is because I thought it was a time of creation. Yeah. And we're still in a loop, you know. And when the U.S. gets lost, <laughs> I yeah. mean, you yeah. know, it has a global impact. Yeah. Yeah. When the U.S. gets sick. I mean, I, I it's such a dynamic region. It's so young in population. It's so diverse. And so and it's nestled right between the U.S. and China. So all of the, right. you know, uh, if you care in climate change, never mind, you, you know, the, climate change. the essential uh, role of Southeast Asia. So if you care about democracy, climate, great power politics, like where young people are headed, uh, I always look at Southeast Asia as bellwether. Well, the last question I'll just ask you then is, it, I actually find some optimism. What I like about you is that you, you don't sugarcoat the problems, but there's optimism that we can deal with them and even in your answer just now, I mean, it could be a lot worse, right? In, in other words, yes. like given how bad things are, like there are still laws and institutions, even if they're weak and are sometimes violated, there's still young people that are not succumbing to kind of the cult of Duterte or whatever. And you have this phrase that you kind of end on in the book, hold the line, <laughs> which is yeah, where I kind of wanted yeah. to end this interview. Because to me, it means like if we can just weather the storms for, for a little while longer, we can come out on the other yeah. end, you know, with something other than back to the future, other than like a Marcos or or a Trump or, or frankly, even a Biden here, right? You know, the generational yeah. change needs to happen. What, what does hold yes. the line mean to you? You know, I um, the graphics that I thought of about this was I, I, I didn't know how to push back against a government that was attacking us. 
because I didn't want to be an activist. I, you know, I wasn't trying to tear Duterte down. We were just telling those stories. And so hold the line. The line is where the Constitution draws our rights. And I felt like the, the government under Duterte was trying to push us, was using a bulldozer to push us to get off the line, to voluntarily give up our rights. And so, you know, when I was talking to Rapplers, it was like, we link arms and we hold the line. And I think we have. And I think that's the, because in the end, it's such an uncertain world. You know, you you don't want to push in any direction because as a journalist, you're actually telling people what is what the governments are doing. What and and frankly, I I feel empathy to, for government officials today when the information ecosystem is as corrupted as it is today. How do they get their messages out? How do they lead? Right. That means you must be far more inspirational than you have ever been to cut through this and to try to pull people together. So hold the line for me as a journalist is about sticking to what the Constitution says giving our people, giving our citizens what they need. And it's actually exactly what you said. The platforms calls us users, consumers. We need to move away from being users, meaning you're passive, to actually redefining civic engagement in this age of exponential lies. Um, I am optimistic. I mean, I have no choice but to be. Yeah, and I think yeah. you're optimistic too, because we we are creating what the world is going to become. And I think that's what's exciting to a young journalist today. They don't have to go, you know, when I was starting, I'd go get coffee. There's so much I needed to learn. I didn't have real power. I couldn't choose a story. Well, they can do all of these things, but it's a far more chaotic world. But everything they do, if we can actually organize ourselves, then we can make a dent and begin to create. But see, it all, I have kind of like this timeline, right? In the long term, it is education. In the medium term, it has to be legislation. Yeah. And in the short term, it is just us. You know, it, and this is, I think, the reason I've been in the book, what you get, and, and in everything I've said is a sense of urgency. Because what I don't like is when we talk to, you know, big government agencies, it moves at a glacial pace. But information is at lightning pace today. And that information is literally reshaping what humanity is becoming. So I feel like, you know, we have these last two minutes. I, I, I play basketball. Yes, I'm tall. No, I'm short. But, you know, um, it's the last two minutes and I think we can still win it. But I think what we what we stand to lose is so much of who we are. And I mean that globally. You know, you, so, um, I'm yeah. mostly, I feel like Paul Revere, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, I, I love that answer. And I, I love that concept of, of, of linking arms and holding line. Everybody should check out, uh, how to Stand Up to a Dictator. It's a phenomenal book uh, from a phenomenal person. Check out Rappler. Uh, and, and we're so glad you could join us today, Maria. Oh, thank you for having me, Ben. It is always good to speak with you. Thanks again to Maria Ressa for joining the show. Ben, thank you to William and Kate for making us laugh. Yes. And uh, the good people of Somerville. Well, yeah, the first and foremost, the good people of Somerville. Thanks to Justin Verlander for signing with the Mets. Amen. I think Cody Keenan told me this was his market basket when he lived in Boston, actually. Was it really? Um, yeah. I mean, there's nothing more peculiar than like big Northeastern cities and their like 
weird supermarket chains or convenience uh, store yeah. chains. Like it's different, you know, Philly and New York and Boston totally. all have like wildly different ones that like everybody knows and shops at, but yep. nobody outside of those cities is aware of. You Including know? Dr. Oz. Yeah. It can get you yeah. in trouble. <laughs> exactly. It can get you in trouble. It can lose <laughs> your center race. Yeah. Yeah. You're fucked. Uh, all right. Well, uh, that's it for us, but uh, talk to you guys next week. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Saul Rubin is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth. Upload our episodes and videos at youtube.com slash crooked media. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.